0: Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be dealing with verses 15 through 17 today in Colossians 3. But before we get to that, there is this little matter of our homework, isn't there? All right, our homework, we were going to memorize together, Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through the beginning of 8, and it was such a blessing to my life as I memorized it this week. Uh, so many opportunities I had to be unkind, to be impatient, to keep a record of wrong. I mean, I had just numerous opportunities to do that, and then the Holy Spirit would bring this scripture to memory as I was committing it to memory, and it literally changed my behavior this week. And I've heard that from many of you uh, this week as well. So now we're going to recite it together, make sure that we did our homework. This is called accountability. Let's all stand when we recite the word of God. Many different translations are used here, so if you didn't do your homework and you just kind of go, oh, nobody will even know. (laughs) Nobody will know, except the Lord. Okay, so we'll do it in a nice, even cadence. Here we go. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not boast, it is not arrogant, does not act rude. Does not seek its own, is not easily provoked. Love does not keep a record of wrong. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Here comes the easy part. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Good job, guys. Good job. You can be seated. Colossians chapter 3, let's read verse 15. Colossians 3.15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the work that your word is doing in us. Thank you that, Holy Spirit, when we get together, you come and you wash us in the word. Thank you that, Father, you cause our mind to be renewed as we receive the word. Thank you that our spiritual man is fed and built up. And as was testified of just now, our days are changed because of your word. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you, God. Your word is living and it's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it forth. And so, Lord, accomplish a work in our hearts once again this morning. We just come before you saying, Lord, we want to surrender our lives. We want to be submitted to your will and to your ways. Your will be done in this place, even as it is in heaven. Work now, Lord, as we study the Bible. Holy Spirit, come and instruct us. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 So we have here in verse 15 this very interesting phrase. Where it says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. First thing that we want to understand when beginning to examine this is that God is a God of peace. No matter what person of the Trinity you're talking about, God is a God of peace. He is not a God of confusion. Amen? We are often people of confusion, But thankfully, we have a God of peace. And the Bible speaks of this concerning every member of the Trinity, as I referenced a moment ago. Concerning the Father, it says in Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Concerning the Son, Jesus himself said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And again, Jesus said in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the worlds. So the Father is a God of peace, Jesus Christ is a God of peace, and the Holy Spirit as well. It says uh, in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, joy, peace, and so on and so forth. So God is the God of peace, and he calls us to peace. But what exactly is meant here when it says the peace of Christ? I want you to notice that we're not talking about peace with God. We're talking about the peace of of God, so it 's to be separated here, this idea from justification. Romans 5:1, you guys know it says, "Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. that's not what we're talking about right here. It, we're not referring to peace with God that comes through Jesus. we're talking about the peace of God that comes from Jesus. okay? Two different ideas. you'll want both of them, amen. But here in the context, it is the peace of Christ that comes from Christ. It's what Jesus was referring to in John 14, 27, when he said to the disciples, My peace I give to you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. My peace I give to you. That's so profound because Jesus is the prince of peace, isn't he? And so he's got all the peace, you know what I mean? He's got every piece of peace, all the peace. And so when he says, my peace I give to you, it is perfect peace that he gives. It's wonderful peace because he is absolutely in control, amen? He's the beginning and the end. He made all things. All things are held together by his power. Everything is subject to him. Everything is consummated in him. He is totally in control of all things. And when you're in control of all things, you have perfect peace, And the promise to the Christian from Jesus Christ is, My peace I give to you. His peace. Now, this peace comes with His presence. We'll define what the peace is in a moment. But it's important that we realize that really this peace comes into our lives when the presence of Christ is with us. When we are abiding in Christ, being intimate with the Lord. The peace comes with Him. It's the same in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God told Moses to tell Aaron and the priesthood how to bless the sons of Israel. And so God said to Moses, say to Aaron and his sons, you shall say to Israel, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Lift up this, his countenance on you, this idea of his presence, his nearness in your life, and how that brings peace. And so the peace of Christ comes from the presence of Christ. Amen? Now, trying to define exactly what this peace of Christ is, I took note of a, a few attempted definitions from some of my favorite commentators here. R. Kent Hughes says. It's not just the peace we experience when there is no conflict, but it is a sense of wholeness and well being, completeness and totality. I like that. It comes from Christ, it comes from his presence in our lives. Uh, Robert Gromacki says this It is that inner calmness of emotions and thoughts which rests on the assurance that God is too good to be unkind and too wise to make mistakes. I really like that one. Spiro Zodiotis, Greek language scholar says, It is a tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, fearing nothing from God, and consequently content with its earthly lot, whatever it is. I like that too. And then I took a stab at my own definition. I wrote down, It is the abiding calm and confidence that comes from knowing that the Lord will never leave you or forsake you, that He is with you always, and that if He is for you, no man can stand against you, and that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It is the calm and confidence that comes into the life of the Christian by those realizations, because of those truths, those scriptural realities. When we lay hold of those by faith, then we have that calm and that confidence. I want you to turn to Philippians 4, if you would. We'll be right back to Colossians 3, but go to Philippians 4 briefly. And we're going to get a brand new memory verse here. Brand new memory verse in Philippians 4. So if you didn't make it last week, you you got a chance this week. Brand new memory verse. We're going to memorize Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. I've previously have, I've already memorized these, and these have been an incredible, incredible blessing to my life. I think you'll see why as we read it. We're going to read all the way through verse 8. I'm not asking you to memorize verse 8, but if you do, it's extra credit. Okay, Philippians 4, starting in verse 6, concerning the peace of God. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8, extra credit. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on those things. So in these three verses, we have both a directive and then a promise and another command. The first bit of direction is given to us in verse 6 where it says, Be anxious for nothing. Easier said than done, right? But but here's what you do when, when you get anxious. This is so awesome. Man, if you'll commit this to memory, it will change your life. Here's what you do every time you get anxious. Anybody get anxious? Anybody more than 10 times a day? I totally do. And so it says this. Be anxious for nothing, but here's a strategy now. Spiritual strategy for anxiety. In everything, no matter what's going on, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The moment you begin to worry, the moment you feel anxious, no matter what it is, in everything, tell God about it, it says. Bring it before him. By prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. God, I don't have money for the mortgage this month. My request is that you would provide for me. God, I have made a mess of this relationship. I don't know what to do. My request is that you would come and clean up my mess by your grace. Lord, I am caught in this bondage. It is destroying my life. I'm scared. I'm anxious. I don't know what to do. My request is that you would set me free. And then, every time subsequent to that moment that you get anxious, you pray again and make your request be made known to God. You pray with importunity. But notice there's a key ingredient which we cannot miss it says to do so with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, the Old Testament teaches us that you never approach the presence of God without thanksgiving. It's just theologically rude. And so with thanksgiving first, before you make your requests known, begin to thank the Lord for the good things he's done in your life. If you can't think of anything good that he's done in your life, your perception is clouded a little bit, that's okay. Here's how to clear it up. Begin to just thank him for who he is. When you begin to thank the Lord for who he is, his characteristics, and his attributes. You'll begin to see the things that he's done in your life. You'll start to thank him for what he's done. That's called praise and worship, thanking the Lord for who he is and what he's done. You start out doing that, and what will happen is it will change your perspective. It will begin to change you from the inside out. It'll do this wonderful thing from taking you from a place of woe is me to wow, bless the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away and I've made some messes, but bless the Lord my God. And by the way, Lord, here's my situation. Would you please deal with this? That is an incredible strategy for anxiety. You see why I want you to commit that to memory? It'll change your life. And then the next verse is a promise, a conditional promise. If you fulfill the conditions of verse six, then here's the promised fruit that will come forth from that. It says then, and the peace of God, verse seven, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It'll guard your heart and mind. The peace of God, that perfect peace, will guard your hearts. Your heart won't get all messed up. And your mind, from that running and turning over and over and, and playing scenarios and just going in that downward spiral that I know something about. Commit your anxieties to the Lord. Begin to thank Him. Tell Him what is troubling you. Tell them what you need, and the promise of Scripture is that the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. Notice it says, the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. It means that it is exclusive from understanding. You don't have to understand a situation to have peace in it. That's why Proverbs 3, 5 says, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge the Lord. He will make your path straight. Amen? Lean not on your own understanding. Just tell the Lord about it. You see, He gives you peace that is beyond your understanding, beyond what you're able to comprehend, and in the midst of uncertainty and unclarity, because He's the God of peace, He will bring to you, His child, perfect peace. That is a promise if you will fulfill the conditions of verse 6, simply praying and thanking the Lord. And then the last one is a follow-up strategy really, really good follow-up strategy. You've done verse 6. You're expecting by faith the peace of God to come upon you and guard your heart and mind from getting overwhelmed. And the follow-up strategy then, how you partner with the Holy Spirit in that, is to let your mind dwell on whatever is true. Reject the falsehoods. Reject the speculation and imagination. That's the playground of the enemy, imagination and speculation. What if and what about and maybe they might and I'm not sure. Forget about that. Okay, the enemy takes advantage of you when you deal with that. The Bible says whatever is true, whatever is honorable. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, what is of good repute, if there's any excellence and everything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. There's the follow-up strategy. You got anxious, you got worried, so you started to thank the Lord for who he is and what he's done. You made your request. Now by faith you know that he's gonna bring that peace to guard your heart and mind and your partnership, your follow-up strategy there. It's to let your mind dwell on those things and not the uncertainties, not the frightenings, not the what-ifs, not the ugly things, but the good things of God. Amen? Now that is how the peace of God functions in our life with regards to anxiety. But there's another way then that the peace of God functions in our life. And that's in the time of decision. Anybody ever have to make difficult decisions? Anybody more than 10 times a day? I do. Anybody ever wonder, what is the will of God for this situation? God, which way do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? What should I do? Anybody ever wonder what the will of God is? Well, the peace of Christ plays a key role in helping us determine the will of God for our daily lives. So turn back to Colossians now. Colossians chapter 3 again. As we see how the peace of Christ helps us determine the will of God in our lives. It says there in verse 15 once again that we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Now, that word rule in the original language, which you know is Greek for the New Testament. That word rule has the idea of an umpire, or or really the the, the function of an umpire. You guys know what an umpire does, right? Everybody knows what an umpire does. It also carries the idea of an arbiter. An arbiter, that's a, a person who settles a dispute or has ultimate authority in a matter. But we like the word umpire. It's a little more common to us, right? So forget about arbiter, unless you're like a legal person or something, but we like umpire us, normal people. And, and so it could be translated this way. This, this is Kenneth Weiss' translation. It says, and the peace of Christ, let it be acting as umpire in your heart. Now it's in that tense, let it continually be acting as umpire in your heart. What does it mean then? To let the peace of Christ rule in your heart or act as an umpire or arbiter. Again, a, a couple ideas here. R. Hughes says, let the peace be umpire in your heart amidst the conflicts of life. Let it decide what is right. Let it be your counselor. Uh, Lightfoot, great scholar of days past says, wherever there is a conflict of motives or impulses or reasons, the peace of Christ must step in and decide which is to prevail. Like an umpire. He was safe. He's out. He's safe. He's out. And the umpire steps in and he makes the call, and that's a final call, right? And so it is allowing the peace of Christ to call fair or foul in a direction or a decision that we are considering. Allowing the peace of Christ, like an umpire, to call fair, go ahead, or foul, don't do it, in a direction or a decision that we are considering. So this peace of God should constantly regulate the activities and the decisions of the Christian. Here's how it works. Let me break it down. Every Christian already has the abiding peace of Jesus Christ. Remember what he said in John 14, 27? My peace I give to you. We already have it as Christians We have the peace of Christ. It is a promise. Okay? So we have this uh, abiding peace. We already defined it. It's that calm and that confidence that comes from knowing the person and the promises of God. So because we already have that then, what we want to look for when we're making a decision is whether that peace abides and continues or becomes disturbed and interrupted or even departs. You see, if we continue in obedience to Christ and walking in the will of Christ, then that peace in our heart will just continue. Just that sure peace of, I know who my king is. It just continues in your heart. But if we start to step out, even unintentionally, and go in the wrong direction or, or make a wrong decision, then this peace of Christ gets disturbed within us. And so it cries, foul. You're making a decision, you're going in a certain direction, and that peace is just abiding, it's undisturbed. It might be Christ saying, fair, that's my will, that's my way to go. But if it's disturbed or you just don't have that peace, that peace departs from you. It is acting as umpire. Don't go in that direction. Now, two things about that. Uh, Number one, I've learned that you never, ever go against the peace. I've learned that by just making a lot of mistakes. Where something will seem like the right decision to me, logically, maybe even intuitively we might say, maybe according to the wisdom of men, maybe according to what I can see, what's tangible, the resources I have. It might make all the sense in the world to make this decision. But as I'm going in that direction, there's a disturbance in that peace. I don't have peace about it. And you know, I can talk myself into anything. I'm a pretty good talker. I talk myself into anything. Oh, well, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know how I am, (laughs) X, Y, Z, all these points. That seems like the right thing to do, but I don't have peace. Well, that's probably, you know, I had that burrito for lunch. Let's just go for it. (laughs) Man, I've gotten in a lot of trouble doing that. I have learned that you never go against the peace. It is a command of Scripture here. In verse 15, let the peace of Christ act as umpire. If it's disturbed, he's saying foul, not safe, don't go there. If it abides, then you might just be in the will of God and you might be making a godly decision. Now, I used to think when I was first exploring this passage in my life and trying to apply it to my life, I used to think that if I was making the right decision or going in the right way, I would have this new overwhelming sense of peace. And that's how I would know. There would be this new just, whoa, peace, man, peace, you know but I found out that's not how it works because we already have the peace of Christ. The question is whether or not it's abiding and remaining and if you're steadfast in it, don't be looking for this new, whoa, flood of peace. Just, okay, my my peace remains. The, the, The peace of Christ abides and it stays and it's undisturbed and I'm settled in my soul in this peace. Or the other is if it's disturbed. So if it's not disturbed, it may be that you're headed in the right direction. But we do need to be aware of false peace in the heart. We do need to remember Jeremiah 17, 9, which you guys all know says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we all know Proverbs 28, 26, which says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Listen to what the Bible says. And yet how often is a mantra of Christians and non-Christians, well, I'm following my heart. I feel it in my heart. There was a guy uh, I was counseling just a couple weeks ago, and he was going against the clear teachings of Scripture. I mean, in black and white, A, B, and C. And he was doing absolutely contrary to that. And I said, How can you do this? And he said, I've got to go with what's in my heart. Nothing could be less true. Antithetical to the Bible. The Bible says he is a fool. Who trusts in his heart? Because the heart is desperately wicked, full of deceit. Who could know it? And Jesus said that out of the heart come fornication and adulteries and murders and thefts. So it's really a silly thing for the Christian to say, well, I'm trusting my heart. I'm following my heart. And unfortunately, there are times where our own sinfulness, the deceitfulness of our own heart our own very strong desires can cause us to think we have the peace of Christ when we, in fact, do not. Unfortunately, this is true. We see it in the life of Jonah. Jonah disobeyed God, and yet he was so at peace that he was able to sleep in the bottom of the boat during the storm, wasn't he? I mean, there he was just sleeping during the storm. He wasn't tripping out on it too bad. He said, oh, I'll go to Tarsus, no big deal. I feel fine about this. He was in direct disobedience to the Lord. And so the peace of heart is not always the peace of God. I cannot tell you how many times in my own life, and as I've sat with other people to counsel them, they've said to me, well, I have peace about it. When it was very clear that it was the wrong way to go, the wrong decision, not the will of God. Jonah thought he was at peace when actually his sins created a huge storm that made a huge mess and threatened the safety of those who were around him. And so then this is where this concept of the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts intersects with the next two verses, and we see that there's a few other precepts that work in tandem with it, then th- that will bolster our understanding and help us to further determine the will of God, though our hearts may deceive us. Alright, so let's read the next few verses in verses sixteen and seventeen. Actually, let's start in 15, because there's some other stuff. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, and with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Now we see that there are some other factors in these following two verses that interact with the peace of Christ, work in tandem with the peace of Christ to help us discern the will of God. So, when you're pondering a decision or a direction... It's one of those big deals, you know what I mean. You want to ask yourself, according to these couple of verses, the following questions. The first thing you want to ask yourself is, is what I'm considering doing according to the word of Christ? Is it consistent with the word of God? And does it give room for the word of God to dwell richly in me? Am I being flooded with the Word of God? Am I being consistent here with the Word of God? You've got to ask yourself that question. It will help you determine whether or not you truly have the peace of Christ because you can rest assured that God will never, ever give you peace in something that is contrary to His Word. He just isn't going to contradict Himself. That'd be ridiculous. We don't like it when people do it. We shouldn't like it if our God would do it. He doesn't do it, amen? And so he'll never give you peace if you're going against the word. And so I think I have peace in this situation, but let me first search the scriptures to see if the direction I'm thinking about going in is consistent with the word of God. And it's so important that we do this. I can't tell you once again How many people I've sat with as their pastor and had them look me in the eyes and say, I know the Bible says this, but I prayed about it and I have peace. I'm gonna do it anyway. Now, when we're all sitting here in church and we've got our Sunday best on, that just seems ridiculous to us. But it happens week in and week out. When I was a college pastor at Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara for seven years, I heard it week in and week out with regards to fornication. And people living together. I heard it over and over again. Yeah, we're we're living together. Are you sleeping together? Yeah, we're sleeping together. You know the Bible says you can't do that. Well, we love each other and we prayed about it and we feel like it's okay. We have peace about it. Okay, but wait, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's go from Genesis to Revelation. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this. They say, I see that, but we have peace about it. We feel okay about it. Major problem there that peace is not from the Lord. It is from the wickedness of your own heart. The heart is desperately wicked and full of deceit. A fool follows his own heart. And and so we've got to then check these things against the word of God. Look at the warnings of Proverbs. Proverbs is so good with these things. Proverbs 4, verses 20 through 23 says, my son, give attention to my words. Okay, In, in context, it's Solomon writing these wise sayings to his son, but it's a word of God to you and I. as the Holy Spirit authoring them, Solomon penning them. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your hearts. Let them dwell richly within you, as Colossians says. For they are life to those who find them and health to all their whole body. Watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Here we see the command of Scripture to let the word of God connect in our heart and guide us and direct us. Again, Proverbs 2, 1 through 11. Another great promise here and warning. My son, if you will receive my sayings, the word of God, and treasure my commandments in your heart, the word of God, Make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment and lift your voice for understanding, if you seek for her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then, okay, an if-then statement, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. You'll know right from wrong and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth. That is the word of God. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of, the just, of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. And if then, statement, if you heed the word of God and let it dwell richly within you, seek after it like treasure, hold those commandments ever before you, then the promise is that God will guard your steps he will make your path straight according to his word. Conversely then, if we do not continually hold the word of God before us, it is so easy for us to be led astray, to go in the wrong direction, no matter what you may feel or not feel in your heart. Second homework assignment, final one. Second homework assignment is to read Psalm 119. Psalm 119 this week. Now, it's the longest chapter in the whole Bible, Psalm 119, but it's not that long. I mean, It'll take you 10 minutes if you read it from start to finish. So read it a couple times this week, Psalm 119, okay? It's incredible. It's all about the Word of God and promises concerning the Word of God and the effect that it has in our life. Read it small chunks at a time. You'll notice that it's broken up into sections according to the Hebrew alphabet. It's very interesting. Break it up into sections. Read it and meditate on it. but, but, But very importantly, I want you to pray a prayer from it. I want you to pray verse 18 from Psalm 119. And I want you to pray this every time you open up the word of God from now until the rapture of the church. I always pray this when I open up the word of God in my own personal reading time. The psalmist writes, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law, thy word. Open my eyes that I may behold, see, understand, discern, know wonderful things from thy word. I always pray that when I read the Bible. So I want you to pray that before you read Psalm 119 and I want you to read it in chunks and then just begin to meditate on it. Again, it's all about the word of God and the effect and the work of the word of God. I think it'll be so radical in your life if you'll commit that and I suggest you do it right when you wake up in the morning. Now, two of the most interesting verses often quoted in Psalm 119 are verses 105 and 130 and together they say this, the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The unfolding of thy words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now, let's relate this to discerning the will of God. If you were walking in the darkness and you were carrying a lamp, you know, in this context, lamps weren't like, you know, the the million candlestick, Thing you get from Costco. It weren't like that, you know what I mean? A little lamp. A lamp unto your feet. It will light up just enough area for you to see the next step that you're to take. That that next step is safe, that it's a sure place for footing. So is the Word of God in your life. You see, God never anywhere in Scripture promises that He's going to show you the beginning from the end. He simply says, I am the beginning from the end. He never promises that He's going to show you the big picture. In fact, he says, come to me daily and say, give me this day my daily bread. He says, in fact, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, don't worry about tomorrow. It's got enough drama of its own. Loose paraphrase. And so what he does is he gives us the word of God to guide us step by step. It's a lamp that just lights the next step for you and I. And if you'll just take each step according to the precepts of the Word of God, you will one day look around and say, I have been on the right path and I am right in the middle of the Word of God. But it's accomplished step by step. The Lord does not generally now, generally, the Lord can do whatever He wants, but it's my experience and it's consistent with the Word of God that His general working is to not give you the big picture. Not the five year, not the 10 year, not the 20 year, why? Why? you would never pray again. You wouldn't seek the Lord again. You just figure, oh, well, it's done, and I'm good to go, and I got it, and I know it's going to happen, Lord. Let me give you an illustration of how this worked out. Again, an illustration from my time as a college pastor at Calvary Santa Barbara. I want to be very sensitive about this. More than two dozen times, in seven years, for sure more than two dozen times, for sure more than, maybe almost 50 times. Somebody would come to me and say, Brit, God showed me who my husband was. He was generally a woman. This is not somebody that she had a relationship with. It was just some guy sitting on the other side of the sanctuary or they knew from the group or whatever. They would come to me and they'd say, Brit, God showed me who my husband is. Now, I want to say this with such gentleness, but I have to tell you the truth about that statement. In seven years of hearing that dozens of times, I never, no, never, not once ever saw it come to pass. Never, not once, not a single time ever were they right. Right? Never once, not a single time, were they right. Now, of course, there are people who are already in relationship and the Lord is working in their lives and it comes to that day where you know, this is my bride, this is my groom. But I personally have never seen it work out with that big picture, way down the distance sort of way. Why? Because you can't handle it. People can't handle that kind of knowledge. They can't deal with that kind of foresight. That's for God. That's not necessarily for you and I all the time in those details of our lives because it distracts us then from simply following Jesus Christ. And it's so consistent with the word of God that he doesn't do that. Please turn to Jeremiah 29 as I demonstrate. We'll be back to Colossians, but go to Jeremiah 29. Keep your finger in Colossians. Jeremiah 29, you guys all know verse 11. At least half of all Christianity says that this is their favorite verse, their life verse. Even though in context, it's a promise to Israel when they were in exile in Babylon. And it has to do specifically with God bringing them out of Babylon. And yet Christians love to rip it out of context and apply it to their own lives. Now, generally speaking, yes, the Lord is good. You know, but there are many Christians who are martyred daily. Thousands daily around the world who are martyred. So they wouldn't necessarily claim this is their life verse, you know what I mean. In context, it's to Israel, but it does reflect the heart of God for all of his people, generally speaking. But let me just show you what I'm talking about with God not necessarily giving us the big, long-distance plan. He says there in verse 11, and we all know it, uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, turn the page. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And then verse 12 says, And I will tell you all the plans that I have for you. In their fullness of detail, I will reveal them to you beginning to end. Oh, it doesn't say that in your Bible? Oh, that's because it doesn't say that anywhere in any Bible on the face of the earth. The Bible doesn't say that. Look what it says next then you will call upon me and then I'll tell you all the plans I have for you. It doesn't say that. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Now look at the thrust of it and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. In other words, the Lord is saying, I know the plans I have for you. You don't need to know. You can't handle it. Your job is to search for me with all your heart, and you will find me as far as it concerns you. I am the plan. Amen. Amen. That's what the Lord is saying here. He says, I know the plans I have for you. You don't worry about that. You search after me. I will work my plan. You say, that's just the Old Testament. Well, what about Jesus Christ in Matthew 6 when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all those other things and necessities of life will be added unto you. Jesus said the same thing in the New Testament. You just seek me. You let me worry about the details. And so I believe that it's God's normal mode of operation. Though He's God. He can do whatever he wants and there's always exceptions. His normal mode of operation is to guide us step by step with the peace of Christ and the word of Christ working in tandem and they will never be in conflict with one another. Amen? Okay, the question then becomes, how do we let the word dwell richly in us? Because that's what it says we're to do in tandem with looking for the peace of Christ, uh, letting that abide. We're to let the word dwell richly. Well, very simply, you read it. Okay, you got to read it if it's going to dwell in you. There's no way around that. Often I find that people don't read their Bible because they think it's hard to understand. That's not necessarily true. There are parts of the Bible that are very difficult to understand. I give you that. But generally speaking, in Christianity, we have something that is called the doctrine of perspicuity. The doctrine of perspicuity, it's an old word that just means clarity, really. It means that the word of God was written to be clear and understandable for you and I. That is a basic teaching, a concept, the doctrine of the word of God. It is clear and it is understandable, though obviously there are difficult parts. But don't let the difficult parts then pull you away from reading it I love the way Mark Twain put it in perspective. Mark Twain, he said, Most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture which they cannot understand. But as for me, I have always noticed that the passages in Scripture which trouble me the most are those I do understand. (laughs) Don't worry about what you don't get, deal with what you've got the first step to letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you is to read it. And it will both comfort you and trouble you according to what you need in your life at that moment. The second step to letting it uh, dwell richly richly in you is to meditate on it. Meditate not in the Eastern sense of Eastern mysticism meditation, to medicate, to masticate, to chew on, to think upon, to, to just be with and ponder The word of God. Keep it always before you, the Lord said in Deuteronomy 6. He said it in Joshua 1. He said it in Deuteronomy 31. So on and so forth. He said over and over, keep the word before you. Meditate on it. And then the next way to let it dwell richly in you is memorize it. That's why we've been doing this for the last couple weeks. We're applying the word of God. We're becoming doers of the word of God. So you gotta read it number one. You meditate on it number two. You memorize it number three. Not the whole thing. Portions thereof that the Lord would make important for your life. And then lastly, you act upon it. Anything short of those four things is not the word of Christ dwelling richly in you. It's not dwelling richly in you if you just read it passively every now and again. One year Bible, three minutes there, I'm done. It's not dwelling richly in you unless you're meditating on it. As you're committing it to your heart by memory. And then it really is only truly dwelling when you are acting upon it when you're putting it into action, when you're a doer of the word, then it is dwelling richly. And then you can always be sure that the Holy Spirit is going to guide you in the right course. Because the word of Christ is richly dwelling, dwelling. Excuse me, The peace of Christ is abiding. And when they are in unison and harmony and symphony with one another, you're golden. Okay, but there's another thing that we want to check on. According to our scripture back in Colossians, as you go there, Another thing that we want to check in the midst of decisions and directions is we got to ask ourselves, does what I'm going to do bring me into harmony with the rest of the body of Christ? Because that's what it said there in verse 15, right? In verse 15 of Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body. We're called to one body, so we must be in harmony. But if somebody is in contradiction to the peace of Christ and the word of Christ, then they're going to be out of tune. And we're no longer in harmony. We're no longer in symphony. When someone is out of God's will, then it brings discord and disharmony and disunity to the body. And quite frankly, it really messes things up. Jonah was out of the will of God, and it brought a storm that affected other people. It messed with other people's lives. It endangered their well-being. And so when we're going to do something, we should ask ourselves, does this lend itself to the unity of the body of Christ, or is it divisive? Does it cause me to be out of tune and in disharmony and discord? The third thing we want to ask regarding our decision is, does it give place and consideration to the instruction and warnings of other Christians. That's what it said in verse 16 of Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching, instructing, admonishing means to sternly warn. And as Christians, we're to teach one another, you know, where we can be taught, and we're to warn one another when somebody's going in a bad direction. It says in Hebrews 3 that we're to watch over one another's hearts. Paul said it in Romans 15, 14, he said, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Because of the word of Christ richly dwelling in us, we're able to warn each other. And it's very important when you ponder a big decision that you seek some counsel from godly people. Proverbs says that so emphatically, so powerfully. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5 says, A wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Proverbs twelve fifteen. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. We need counsel because sometimes we get clouded in our perception because of our own wants, desires, needs, agendas, whatever. And somebody else could come in and see what you simply cannot see and speak the wisdom of God into your life. A fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. Proverbs 13:10. Through presumption comes nothing but strife. But with those who receive counsel is wisdom. Proverbs 19:20. Listen to counsel and accept discipline, that you may be wise. The rest of your days, a promise of scripture there. In Proverbs 27, 9, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. So when you're facing those decisions, pondering those directions, yes, you want to look for the peace of Christ. Is it abiding? Yes, it needs to line up with the word of God, and you need to be sure that the word of God is richly dwelling in you. Then you want to make sure that it's a decision that brings you into harmony with the body, not one that causes disunity in the body. And then you seek some godly counsel according to the command of Scripture here. The fourth thing, and then there's just one more after that, is this one, and this is a huge. Can you do it in the name of Jesus? Oh boy. That's where things really get clear. Because that's what it says in verse 17. And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so you're considering doing this. Okay, but think about it for a minute now. If you do that, can you do it in the name of Jesus? It doesn't mean saying in Jesus' name. It means can you do it according to the character of who Jesus is? Can you do it as his representative? Could you do it if he was in the room with you because he is? Can you do it in the name of Jesus? So you're going to do it. While you're doing it, can you say, Jesus, I'm doing this in your name for your glory. If you can, then there's a really good chance that you're in the right direction. If it's according to the word of God and the peace of Christ and the counsel of other Christians and it brings unity to the body. You're going in the right way. Can you do it in the name of Jesus? so important to ask that. Really, what what becomes paramount there is is what I'm thinking about doing, does it ultimately bring glory to Jesus Christ? Because we are made, we are created to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And, And that's really a defining question in seeking God's will. And the last point here for seeking God's will and what the peace of Christ interacts with, the final point for today is the decision that you're going to make, the thing that you're going to do, does it cause you to be thankful? Did you notice that that's a very strong theme in the book of Colossians? Three times it's mentioned in the three verses that we read. At the end of verse 15, it says, and be thankful. At the end of verse 16, it says that we are to be singing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And at the end of verse 17, it says, we are to be giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Let me say this. When there is true peace in the heart, there will be sincere praise on the lips. When there is true peace in the heart, there will be sincere praise on the lips. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It just became very simple, didn't it? What you're going to do, the decision you're going to make, is it going to put you in a place where you can just thank the Lord. If you're in His will, you'll know it. You'll have that peace, that abiding sense, and praise will just come forth from your life. Nobody has ever been able to give sincere praise to the Lord when they're in rebellion to His precepts or His will or His ways. They might fake it. They might offer up lip service. So you've got to ask yourself the question, This thing I'm going to do, this place I'm going to go, is it going to cause me to give glory to God? It might be a horrible place and a horrible thing, but it might be God's will. Have you read Fox's Book of Martyrs? How many men and women were murdered for their faith and in their final moments were singing to the Lord or thanking Christ Jesus? If you're in the will of God, praise will always come forth from your life. David, you know, David blew a big time with Bathsheba committed adultery with Bathsheba, stole another man's wife and then murdered the husband. King David. I want you to see what it says in Psalm 32. Psalm 32. About that incident. Last passage. Psalm 32. You're going to notice that The context here is David has committed his sin with Bathsheba. And you're going to notice that when David remained in his sin, he lost his peace and he lost his praise. He lost his peace and his praise. Now, he was a worship leader of Yisrael. He's a great psalmist. But when he was in rebellion, he lost his peace and his praise. See if you could spot it. Psalm 32, starting in verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now here's David's testimony about his sin. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Literally, life juices were turned into the drought of summer. When I kept into my sin, when I kept in my sin, my life juices dried up like the drought of summer. Through my groaning all day long, For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive my sin. God is faithful and just to forgive us if we'll confess our sins to him. But do you notice the state that he was in prior to confessing his sins? He lost his peace and he lost his praise. He was in misery all day long. He made the wrong decision. He lost his peace. He lost his praise. When you lose your peace and you lose your praise, it just might be some insight from the Holy Spirit saying, Repent! You've done the wrong thing. You've gone in the wrong direction. I love you. I want to forgive you. I want to restore you. But you've got to confess your sins and repent. You've got to turn away from them. And so David did so. And look what it says then in verse 6. He says, I confess my sins to the Lord. And then in verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. When he got in the right place, his peace returned. He said, the floods will not overtake me. And the praise came back to his lips. He was surrounded with songs of deliverance. So how do we discern the will of God? We check those five things, really six. First, the peace of Christ abiding. Second, according to the will of God. Harmony with the rest of the body. Seeking counsel from other godly people. I'm able to do it in the name of Jesus. It causes praise and thankfulness to come forth from my life. Now, the obvious underpinning of all of this is that you are praying with importunity, The obvious underpinning is that you are praying fervently to the Lord. But you really can't take any one of these out of the equation. Because I've gone wrong in my life many times when I had three out of five. I've seen many people go wrong when they had two out of five. Well, I prayed about it and I had peace. Well, I'm giving you counsel right now that it's not right and the word of God says it's not right and it is separating you from this body. I don't care. I prayed about it and I had peace. Bro, you got two out of five. It's not cutting it. Five things to help you discern the will of God. And if there's a disturbance in your peace, it just might be the Holy Spirit saying repent because listen to us, our God is a God of peace and he wants nothing more than for you to stay in perfect peace. My peace I will give to you, said Jesus Christ. And the peace of God shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen? Lord, thank you so much for this word. Your word truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it's so understandable. It's so clear. It's so simply, profoundly awesome, Lord. So I just pray now that you would help us to apply these things. Maybe, Holy Spirit, you would do that neat thing that you do where you bring the totality of our life into focus for a moment. And you say, let's deal with a couple things. Stuff becomes painfully obvious that we missed before. Stuff becomes really clear that was clouded. Would you do that for these, Lord? These are your precious ones. These are your sons and your daughters. Give us your peace anew this morning, Lord. Guide us and direct us. We really want nothing more than to walk in your way and in your will. Holy Spirit, come. Help us to apply the word now. If you need help this morning, the prayer team will be up here. invite you to come forward and take communion, which just reminds us of the work of the cross and is a beautiful snapshot, an ingestible picture of the faithfulness of the promises of God. He will not fail you, no matter how scary things seem. Let's praise the Lord together and seek his face.